0: to just-in-case, to just-too-darn-much. Yeah. And, you know, with that being the history of where we are at the just-too-darn-much, do we go back to just-in-time? Probably not. Do we also go back to just-in-case? Probably not. So, you know, trying to figure out that we've built too much in the system, we need to take inventory out, are you ready to elevate your leadership skills in the electronics manufacturing industry? Join Sana Ding on a transformative journey as she unlocks the key to exceptional leadership in this dynamic field. Discover invaluable strategies, emerging trends, and best practices through expert perspectives and insightful interviews. This podcast is your ultimate resource for gaining a competitive edge, staying ahead of the curve, and shaping the future. Tune in now and unlock the secrets to leadership success in the world of electronics manufacturing.
1: Welcome to Mind Innovation Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Sana Vending, and I'm here to provide you with invaluable insights and strategies that will help you develop the skills necessary for effective leadership. Remember to subscribe, give us a like, and share this episode. Uh, And also remember to connect on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram. In today's excited episode, we're diving headfirst into the current trends and outlook for the electronics manufacturing industry. And I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Dennis Reed. He's a senior research analyst at Edgewater Research, and he's a seasonal tech professional with a rich background in the electronic research industry. Dennis stands as a testament to innovation and progress in technology and semiconductors. So welcome Dennis I'm I'm so excited to our conversation today because I think in the electronics markets you know there's always this uncertainty.
0: No thank, thank you very much and and you know I would agree with you 100% uncertainty is the name of the game but what we've lived through the last 2 3 years it feels like the pace of uncertainty along with the pace of everything else just is, is truly accelerating.
1: Yeah 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 it's it's um it's it's a new world right um and i i think we have to we have to get used to this this kind of speed on on a new world and all the uncertainty um, I, I want to start again first, just to, to so we can we can get you know go, going on this this topic. Um, there's a lot of analytic companies out there, and and they all you know have like several challenges. That that's how I see it, because there's there's all the increasing in complexity, of volume of data, uh, and also the complexity of the data. So I want to hear you know from your side, how do you stay on top of of all this complexity?
0: no, it, it it's a great, great question, and great place to start and And you're one hundred percent right. There is no shortage of data across any industry, including ours. And, and And it is a challenge to sort through you know what is what is really truly impactful, what is noise, or even the stuff that might be perceived as quote unquote noise. There's probably something good there, and you're just not looking at it the right way. So, you know what 10 15 years ago was just trying to figure it out and there wasn't all of this this data coming at you and you kind of operated in a vacuum now you've got this continuous information flow and and, and it's something that you know is 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 really core to kind of what we do so there's a couple of different ways that that really we go about it and. And I think one is is rooted in in our process at Edgewater Research. So where we think we differentiate ourselves is, you know, and it, I would guess if I take a step back, in the simplest way, the, the way we look at the world, there's kind of two ways you can look at it. There's top-down, which is you really start data-heavy, you start from like GDP, and then you boil into individual indices, and you kind of drive down, which is very, very data-heavy. And you have to kind of sort through all of that to find out the key metrics that ultimately matter, what are leading indicators, You know, what are potentially lagging indicators, what have no correlation. And we do that, but really within our process, we focus more on what's kind of bottoms up. And so within that, I really spend 90, 95% of my days, weeks, months interacting with people across the supply chain by the industry. So if you you think of it from just a semiconductor, you know, we'll say we start from sand, you know, to silicon, to part manufacturer, to distributor, to contract manufacturer, to buyer, to ultimately end buyer. So what we're doing is we're having just conversations about what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And and, and so we're looking for aspects and and we've had a, a long history. Our team has 50 years plus of doing it this way. Um, yeah, I bring about fifteen myself. So we've had longstanding relationships. There's a science to it, but there's a little bit of an art to it as well. So what we're what we're trying to identify is, you know, what are some of those inflection points from tone, whether it's you know potentially some customer upsiding orders that we know is the leading indicator, or looking at it top down, or is there somebody taking back orders on the flip side? So we're looking at those things to find kind of that inflection point that yeah. ultimately leads, you know, hopefully the data following it, if you will. So while we're always cognizant, and you can't operate in a vacuum or, or as you know, with the ostrich with your hand in the sand, we really try to ground ourselves in our process, which is a little bit different. It's a little bit manual. It is time consuming to do it. And if we could stay true to our process and, and our belief is then we could ultimately kind of carve our niche out in the industry and, and almost stay in our swim lane and then allow others to kind of play with, he said, she said, this, is it. <laughs> you know, we're going to let them kind of read the tea leaves. Yeah. And we're just going to focus on this is the pulse or this is the heartbeat and know that eventually the industry is going to catch up. So, you know, that I would say in, in, in being, you know, very, very candid and clear with it, like that does relate to some challenges because we are doing that ground up we tend to find inflection points much earlier than the data shows yeah and so there's when the cycles turn positive or negative we tend to get in this position where we're a couple months early um in some, and, and you have to kind of wait for the data come. Yeah. And, and with that being said we then ground ourselves this is our process this is how we do it if it if it's wrong, we've got to then evaluate kind of how it goes. But more often than not, it does play through. But yeah, the process is key for us, one. Um, and, you know, two, I think it's a little bit different with us. You know, we're a Cleveland, Ohio-based company. And so we're we're outside of what you would consider technology hotspots or yeah. market research hotspots. And, you know, that does prove to be helpful as well because you can think a little bit independently right like you're not you're not kind of caught up in that information loop because not a lot of semiconductor gossip and rumors necessarily make it to cleveland ohio um <laughs> so geographically, you know, we're a little bit protected in that way where we could just think independently and again focus on our process and, and go yeah. from there
1: yeah no, and, and I like that you said, you know, you actually are listening, right, to what, what's going on. That is so important, and then you reflect on that, and then you can use that for your data, along with all the hist- histor- historical data, of course.
0: Uh, but, um,
1: you know,
0: yeah. I should have you know, said it. I mean, the listening that we do, the data is very, very important. But the listening that we do helps us inform kind of where the data is going, because yes. whether we're working with one of our financial customers they're obviously looking at making investment decisions. So if anything in the future is significantly more important than the past. Uh, but I would do the same with any of our industry customers as well. When you're thinking about strategy, planning, procurement, any of those business decisions, it's very important to learn lessons from the past, but yeah, you, know, you have to figure out where it's going ultimately. And, and that's what we're using our listenings, that we could then turn and take the data and build that more into a forecast.
1: Yeah. forward so um the million dollar questions right what's happening no <laughs> let's let's talk about like market and, and market trends um and also i'd love to hear you know what what you're seeing what what kind of behavior you know what's what what's going on right now
0: yeah no it's it, you know there's there's a lot in there and there's a lot of different markets as everyone knows um it, it's It's been a very, very, very interesting marketplace in general. So at at the highest level, I, I do think, you know, the unfortunate name of the game right now is inventory. And to be a little bit clear on that, there's too much inventory following the massive shortage that we came out of. So, you know, in terms of what everybody's talking about and really the main focus across every end market is, you know, how do we take inventory out of the system? Yeah. And one and and then two, um, and equally as important, you know, we've I, I've sat at a presentation and at a show, and you know, one senior level exec said, you know, we went from just in time to just in case to just okay. too darn much. Yeah. And, you know, with that being the history of where we are at the just too darn much, do we go back to just in time? probably not do we also go back to just in case probably not yeah. so you know, trying to figure out that we've built too much in the system we need to take inventory out what is that right level and and you can see it you know to give a real tangible example that that probably everybody can can easily you know, see in picture you look at the automotive industry here in the US and in pre covid the dealers would hold between 85 and 90 days worth of inventory in the U.S. Yeah. In one queue of 2022, that dealer level number had bottomed out at about 19 or 20 days. Wow. We are now at about 55 days. Yeah. Of finished vehicle. So, We've gone from, you know, you could argue way too much before to way too little. And we if anybody tried to buy a car, they're very well aware that we were on allocation yeah. to, you know, an area that's somewhere in between. And, and I would argue um, that's probably a good, healthy spot for the automotive OEMs to be at. You know, they're in an operating environment that's challenging. Interest rates are up, right? Yeah. But you haven't seen... You've seen ASPs decline a bit this year, but it's not been rebate driven. It's been entirely mix driven as they've gotten better. You know, they've they've been able to get better allocation, iron out some supply chains, bring in some of your mid or lower price cars. So their average selling price has dropped, but it's dropped purely on mix. Where historically in 80 or 90 days it would have been all rebate driven. So I think you know that's kind of a real tangible reason of what. What's really top of mind, which is you know, kind of inventory and, and where do we where do we where do we end up at kind of balance? Yeah, you know, when you get into the end markets, it's it's in kind of the, the demand and more importantly where it's going. It really depends on what market you're talking about. So if we you know if we start with kind of an easy one um being the PC market. Um yeah we saw a significant pull forward of demand during COVID. And I'm sure everybody who has kids, you know, you went from buying every kid a notebook computer, but, you know, PCs prior to COVID were at 275 million unit market that went from 275 to 300 to 330 to 295 last year in a down year. And this year is going to be about 250. Yeah. So in all of those up years, we shipped in aggregate about 100 million units kind of over trend over a three year window. So now we're into a digestion period where I would argue you've got to undership. So this year's 250, which is 25 million of that 100 that comes out. Next year, I think it's about 260, 265. So again, another 15, 20 million. We're at 40 or 45 million units. So there will be, in our view, within the core PC market, a couple of years where we undergrow that 275 trend. And when we balance that out, you know, probably somewhere in the 25, 26 range, then I think the discussion becomes, we now have a bigger installed base. What is our replacement cadence? Do we go from a market that you know, it grows 1% a year to growing a percent and a half or 2%, there's a potential for that. But until we get kind of back to that status quo, that's, you know, kind of that's the, a tougher operating environment from a demand standpoint. And, and I think you could say the same if you look at smartphones. Um, Smartphones last year were I think one point one two five or one point three one point somewhere in that one point one you know two five so much over a billion they're going to be down four or five percent this year.
1: But consumers are not changing, right? They're holding on to their smartphones, right? They're not. And
0: and I say that's exactly it. Where in, in smartphones. The big unit driver over the last four or five years, even pre-COVID, was China. Yeah. And and within China, you've had um, you've reached a certain level, I think, of saturation saturation in the marketplace. One, and then two, you know, we all know, you know, especially now with hindsight, there was a hope and a speculation that once the Lunar New Year came to a close, once the COVID lockdowns came to a close early in this year, the Chinese consumer would ultimately, and the government would stimulate the industry out of this correction. And, you know, what we've seen, I think, in, in China, but also every other country that emerged from COVID lockdowns, is they had their window when they were stuck at home buying devices yes. and stuff. Um, when they were allowed to go, where you saw the lift in the economy, and I think you've seen this global. You saw it in travel. You saw it oh, in yeah. theater, movies, right? So it was all those kind of soft economy areas. Yeah. That you know, the Chinese economy has some of its own issues, but they're not the the historical. What our industry, which is kind of relied to a big Chinese stimulus, yeah, will pull us right through. Will drive domestic consumption for China, but then also drive their export market with electronics manufacturing. We just didn't see that, um, yeah. and, and we saw where the lifts were: were travel, were theaters. So yeah, the consumer has you know another one, any consumer device you can think of there's, you know, there's been significant, significant pull forward. And, and yeah, you know, I'm sure for anybody that, that tunes in the, the the podcast, I mean, I, I can think about it in our house. I mean, we we had moved in during COVID and you don't take vacation for a couple of years. And now and, you do. <laughs> yeah, now we do. And we put an entire Sonos system in because the speakers yeah. were already in with Five or six different amps or whatever it was, but it was a pretty significant investment. That had we done a family vacation, I'm willing to bet we would not have put a Sonos system in. But when we were all stuck here, yeah, we wanted every single room in our house to had speakers to be able to play different music, even though there's four of us, right? Yeah. So it's completely <laughs> unnecessary. But you know, now we're in a place going forward where. It's great. We love the system, but we'll never need
1: even. Yeah, if we, you don't need a new upgrade on that, right? Yeah. It's yeah. uh, life. So, yeah, the
0: consumer side, I think, also saw, you know, a pull forward. Um, you know, the automotive market, it, it has been a super exciting one. Um, yeah. That is. Yeah, I think there's there's two things going on in, in automotive and, and, you know, there's, there's your internal combustion electrification. Which has its own legs and story, and then there's EV. So I'll talk first on the internal combustion, where you know probably five or seven years ago, your average vehicle had a hundred or two hundred dollars worth of electronics content, electronic content in it. Yeah, and that number is probably now encroaching somewhere between five or six hundred. Yeah. So you've just seen the vehicle become much more digital, right? You can see the screens, you know, everything else just beyond power seating. So yeah. that, is, that is continuing to grow, and it is a very stable, healthy, arguably, you know, kind of a double-digit grower, even with, you know, a relatively flattish unit through COVID. And then the 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 EV side is is incredibly exciting because then you have a massive content opportunity along with just a huge huge unit growth and and you start to do some pretty simple math on it and the numbers get really high really fast. Yeah.
1: What about like data centers and and we also have you know the AI will the AI yeah. have any impact or is it not going to, to do anything?
0: So, it, you know, two, I would say, you know, there's three major buckets in, in data center, um, or at least let's let's start maybe with the server side of data, data center, right? Yeah. So within servers, you've got your enterprise, your data center, and then your AI kind of metrics. So the total server market was about 11 and a half million units last year. Last year, fifty. 75,000 of those units were AI-based units. Yeah. So we're talking a really, really small fraction. So leave that just as a a start, and then I'll put some numbers kind of behind where AI is going. In in your core server, data center and enterprise on-prem is challenged. The enterprise on-prem is probably not surprising, right? A lot of these assets have been underutilized. People that work from home, we're in a tighter economic environment. No surprise there. Um the cloud side for your cloud computing, it's just they operate in a cycle. So if you think of how their businesses work, they try to run where they're no more than 80% peak utilized. So when you get to 80% utilization, there's a massive spend build-out, and then you grow in. So we're we're a touch into a grow out, grow-in phase there. So in aggregate, those two. Categories of server, units will probably be down about a million units okay. this year. Okay. Now, you take that and you compare it to AI. So as I mentioned, AI was about 75,000 units last year. It'll be about 175,000 units this year. So it is, it is a market that has been shocking from call it March first, I think, um, was when the chat GBTs and everything really kind of hit the media. And, and I think you actually gave a presentation at the ERA, and including a lot of it. I mean, that was when that market really, really took off. Right. And yeah. and, and so you're seeing some sort you're seeing entirely an arms race of everyone who is trying to figure out exactly what this means. So when you think about it from the whole industry, there are several companies, a handful of companies, that this is very good for. Them, but they would be you know, kind of what you call the, quote-unquote, pure plays of AI. Yeah. So you look at a NVIDIA, NVIDIA's got $20,000 in content in every single box. You go from 75000 to 200000 It's a massive, massive upshoot for like someone like NVIDIA. Um, You're not getting that lift from like the x86 architecture. So you're not seeing that in like AMD or Intel um, or the total server market. But, you know, when we look at it, you know, it is between processor storage and the networking gear. It's about a $10 billion marketplace this year. Yeah that our forecast by 2030, so seven years from now, those three categories in aggregate could be approaching $100 billion. So it's a huge, huge growth opportunity that does it. This, I think, goes back to your first point in the data. If you just looked at the data on the server units, Mm -hmm. you would see server units down somewhere you know, call it 800,000 units this year. But it's really a tale of three different markets and what's going on. And that's kind of where our process comes okay. into play. So, you know, the AI market is really, really exciting. Um, oh. You know, I say it's an arms race because I, I do think um, it hit the marketplace. And, you know, some of some of the conversations we have where, various entities have a $500 million order book for GPUs over a four year window that once chat GBT hit that order book goes from 500 billion to 1.5 or 500 million to 1.5 billion overnight. And the delivery window goes from four years to two months. (laughs) Obviously you're not going to get all of those at that time. Right. But, um, People are trying to, you know, it, it, it's a little bit of the cliche from field and dreams right now. It's like build it and they will come. People are still, I think, trying to figure out what is the use case? What is honestly the network architecture? So right now, everything's being done, you know, in a training environment on GPUs. Historically, that ports over, moves to an x86 architecture once the cores have been trained. You know, do yeah. We, do you do Follow the historical. Do you need enough speed with these where you stay in GPU? At this stage, a lot of those questions have not been answered because it is so new. Yeah. Uh, But the investment dollars are real. Um, And I think the push to find use cases for it is also very, very real. There is. And I'm sure everybody could look through the media or the noise. You see one article where it's going to replace the job of every single human on the planet. Um, you know, there's another article where it's going to just take over the right. There, there's. Yeah, if,
1: that's all kind of flavors
0: of it. Out there that everybody's figuring out that I, I think we try to ground ourselves and say, in its current form, I would argue the use case today. Doesn't quite warrant maybe the pace of the investment, meaning that there really isn't there isn't really a use case right now. It's a lot of college kids pulling college papers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of efficiencies today. It doesn't mean people are building it, but if you if you take a step back and think, you know, do you build an a, at one of these LLMs and if you're in a, you're a manufacturing company? Mm-hmm. And it's built into your factory network, and its entire process or its entire job is to read your data coming in and compute it and process it faster than we could as humans. Yeah. Then tweak and make efficiencies and and basically draw some conclusions that you put in front of a group of really smart people and see if it's doable. Like when you get into those use cases, where you're taking this core technology that's being built, where that investment is, and now we've got to think of how we use it. Yeah. One, two, how we monetize it, and if we can get into, when we get into that use case monetization case, which is to be seen. That's when those numbers, I think, really, really hold. Yeah, that's hold. the interesting part. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I want to ask you as well about what about the the manufacturers, right? the um, the amount of engineers working on redesign and the amount of engineers working on new design anything there that's actually making any you know do you see any predictions here or or what what are you hearing from 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 your channels
0: yeah yeah so that that's um it's a great question that that's an area that i would say is interestingly enough is actually in a vacuum for not having any data (laughs) um so, yeah, you know, it, it's something when we started with, you know, top of mind is inventory, right? And that goes into the cyclicality of the industry and their up years and down years and everything else. What has been a little different through this inventory cycle mm-hmm. is the design work has not stopped at all. If not, it's accelerated. And I, I think there's, this is very anecdotal, and this is a little bit more of that art versus science in in what we do. Yeah, but I think there, I think there's something to it. So you know, when we know in the, in the massive shortage period, and, and you know, you can think of some of your major you know, I've had some conversations with some of your major PC or server OEMs, right? Yeah, their most talented and bright engineering teams that are literally their Core job is to lay out their architecture, how to use less, you know, less energy, pretty you know, heat. Like yeah. that's what they do in a normal time. For a two or three year window, those teams were all just put in pulled in on let's re spin a, bo- a board because we need to qualify yeah. a new MOSFET supplier, right? And and yeah. not to pick on any MOSFET suppliers, but it wasn't it wasn't then necessarily being out solving problems or shaping product roadmaps. And as we've come and seen supply normalize, a lot of those projects have been brought back to life. Yeah. Um, very rapidly. And if I had to put a ballpark time ish, it, it, it does kind of coincide with when the cycle peaked. So the cycle peaked last October, and that's kind of right when the design work really started to take off in earnest. Um okay. so that's that's a positive thing moving forward. Um yeah. you know, and and there's there's some nuances I would say in between. So what you are seeing um especially in more consumer facing um products, you're seeing a narrowing though of the design resources in in You know, rather than introducing 25 new products in a given, you know, dads and grad season, there might be five. And then they're going to align all the resources behind making five be successful as opposed to canvassing the entire roadmap. So there's some little, you know, little things that are different where I think people are just being a little bit more cautious with it. But the design work is there. Um, So that's a good news. You know, the one thing I think that does make me, um, you know, is a little bit, I'm a little bit cautious on and and is, you know, you, it's how quick you can go from design to production in this remote world. Yeah. Right. It's, it's a mixed bag between who's back at offices, labs and, and, you know not to get on a soapbox on work from home versus not work from home but in some of these cases you know the the number of design starts that take off are very exciting the yeah. time it takes to move is being a little bit elongated which the best guess is because it's harder. You're not getting all the teams in the same place at the same time. You've got people working in various locations.
1: Yeah. That's a new processes, right? That you yeah. You're, you're all the
0: processes. Yeah. So um, yeah, wouldn't be negative with that, but I think it's worth noting.
1: Yeah. What about, so when consumers, you know, go out and buy if it's back to that, that cell phone, right? There's, I think there's new ways now that you can actually buy, you don't need to go into the store, right? We change habits of how we are shopping and buying, has that any effect on, on what's going on? Um, yeah, I, th- I
0: think it does. And, and you know, at, at Edgewater, we've got a group that that focuses entirely on the consumer. So it does, it does tilt very heavy here in the U S their work is focused on, you know, the likes of like your Walmart, your targets in the mass space, Amazon, obviously, and e-commerce, yeah. um, Best Buy and especially, so a whole host of different things. And, and, you know, if you think about it from the retailer's lens, what I think all of these major retailers have had to figure out, you know, they've had to figure out a true omni-channel strategy mm-hmm. and you, you couldn't just be, and there, you know, there's a couple of implications for that, right? You you could be on one end of it where you didn't have much of a digital footprint or an online footprint. But it it could also
1: be the, you know, if you are actually going into the store, right, the self-checking, you know, right? So that you have machines or you go in and you actually order your checkout food, but you just have the big screen and and you touch everything there. So so that has changed a lot, right?
0: Yeah. And that's why I say, like, when you think about how they interact, I was just saying you have to meet the consumer, how they want to be met, whether that's. You're sitting on your computer at home or work, and you order it on a web browser. Yeah. Or you're sitting on your phone, and you order it via even a social media app. Yeah. Or a direct app from a company, or you order it online. You drive to the store, and someone yeah you open the trunk. Put it in your trunk. <laughs> yeah. To, um. You just want, you know, what's considered the historical way of like, I go in and shop and touch stuff and yeah. see how it works, right? To, so when you think of how you have to meet the consumer at different ways, you've seen a little bit of this in in terms of like, how stores are being laid out. Yeah. And, and Best Buy did a little bit of this with the pandemic where, yeah, they drastically Reduce kind of what would be the front of the house if you will which is kind of that you know what we historically think you walk in you see all the pcs right everything else yeah they turned a lot of that front of the house into more warehousing space so they could either take that online order you could punch in a code and then but they also had the space where you could go in with less people you know so there is a whole different point that you know if you're the company how you operate is different. Yeah. Um, it arguably is less labor intensive, which is a completely different rabbit hole that we could go into with the broad worker shortage across every industry. Yeah. Um, but you, you've got to find some efficiencies and the consumer seem open to it. So, again, you take it back, um, you know, you take it back to our industry and in. You know, there's an example I've used when I presented um, at a couple of industry conferences around robotics just in warehouses. And, you know, the largest e commerce supplier, who everybody knows who that is, you know, they pulled forward about 10 years worth of warehouse growth in uh, two and a half years. Yeah. So their actual robotics build went from pre COVID of like, Twenty-five thousand units a year, or like robots a year, to a peak of around one hundred and fifty thousand robots in the peak year. Yeah, and now they're down at like seventy-five thousand robots. So they're half of what they were, but they're still three times what they were mm-hmm. prior okay. to COVID, yeah. and and still growing. Right. So a little bit of that's math, but I think. Um, in pretty basic math that that, you know, with growth rates. But I think it, it points to you are seeing whether it's the point of sale transaction for the consumer will be much more digital and automated. Yeah. The warehouse, the logistics, those will all be much more automated because the consumer has been clear, very much, I think, trained that they can click a button and they could either have it delivered to their house in a day or two. Or if that's too slow, they can drive to location ABC, pick it up. And, you know, as an industry, from a retail standpoint, they've got to figure it out. And the only real way is through leveraging, you know, I would say electronics to do it.
1: Yeah. What about, you know, this is again, right? What will will happen in 2024? So what's what's your predictions if you can list a few of them?
0: Yeah, you know... um, to joke on it a little bit, you know, the magic Eight ball would say the outlook's quite uncertain. Yeah. Um, but, you know. It depends. It, yeah, it
1: depends.
0: Um, uh, you know, but, but all kidding aside with it, um, you know, we, we've we done, when we look just at semiconductors, we've tried to study history to some extent to find out, you know, what does this cycle look like? And it, yeah. So when you look backwards before you look forwards. The good news is um, the industry appears to be showing signs of bottoming, really in June, you know, in June and July. So that's the good news, and it's been a relatively minor peak to trough, roughly nine ten percent, which is very good no- news after the the explosive growth we've had the last couple of years. Yeah. So that's the good news. the The challenging news is. It's probably going to take a lot longer for us to get to that peak environment. So, you know, if we've tried, we've mapped every cycle relative to what the current down cycle is going back to 1990. And this one really mirrors 2011. Yeah. Which there's some. Outside the industry stuff that makes sense. In 11, we had just recovered from the financial crisis, once in a hundred generations, you know, 100 year storm, industry took off and then the inventory cracked, right? Yeah. Um, very similar thing, not making light of COVID and the humanitarian, right? But once in a hundred year event, industry shuts down, takes off, and now we're adjusting the inventory. So if you use 2011 as a proxy, it took 25 months for the industry to return to peak sales okay so that means we peak in october of 2022 which would put us returning back to october of 2022 levels on a monthly basis arguably in november or december of next year so 2024 so yeah you know how does that flush through kind of the overall full year numbers Um, For semiconductors this year, our estimate for the industry is down 12 percent, and that's really significantly pulled down by memory. Yeah. Um, X memory is closer to 6 percent. I think the Delta versus us versus other prognosticators, if you will, for next year is we think the inventory overhang just takes a little bit longer. So. You know, if you want to put a letter on it, it went from V to K to W to U shape recovery. You know, we're kind of of the camp where it's more of an L, meaning, you know, we stabilized here and we're going to kind of hang out here. Yeah. Probably until we get out of the Lunar New Year, we still have booked it for the industry 8.8, so well below one. Um, you'll start, you know, we would guess you would start to see a bookings rebound potentially in late this year. And then, you yeah, know, but really you get into kind of February-ish of next year, you pause, you evaluate the inventory, you get it out of the shutdowns throughout Asia for the holiday. And then we look and say, okay, where we are, where are we from an inventory standpoint? And how does that match up with the with the, the yeah. demand? Yeah, I mean, I think when you boil it up for next year, we think it's, the good news is it's not going to be worse, um, but, you know, we think it's a, a flattish to slight growth year next year we just kind of cycle through some inventory
1: okay so what if you have to look further out um what you know if you say that in the next five or ten years what what do you think one of the you know the challenges that is that will be in the electronics industry
0: yeah i i think when when you look you know when you look further out i'll start maybe with not the challenges but the exciting things you know we Talk a little bit near term about the cyclicality, but the structural side in the growth drivers is pretty exciting. So we touched on on AI, and that has the potential to be, you yeah. know, a hundred billion dollar market. EVs as a standalone can be a you know, an eighty to a hundred billion dollar market exiting this decade, you know, by itself. So right there, you're looking at call it forty percent growth. Yeah. You know, off of the levels today in just two sub segments, so if those numbers are correct um we'll probably run into some level of capacity challenges, which I think we'll have to work through yeah um you know, I think the the biggest challenge is is really the uncertainty that that being candid, we can't quite forecast um but, you know, the escalating tensions between China and the United States is is problematic, right? And we've seen it dating back to 2019 and even before. And it, it continues to be, you know, a, a tit-for-tat reaction between both governments. And at the end of the day, it's not going to, you know, it, it just feels like it's a collision course that, no one's going to win if if we keep on the same path. So that's probably the biggest risk in, you know, the yeah. Chinese government and in and the US government in particular in the western world. You know, find a way to play in the sandbox nicely. That's probably your biggest challenge or your biggest risk I would say. Um, you know, that does create some opportunities and you see it with reshoring and some things like that that'll be opportunities measured i would argue over you know decades not years but um yeah near term that geopolitical risk is is clearly i think the the biggest risk for the next 10 or 15 years
1: yeah we're almost at the end. So I want to yeah. ask you, yeah, you really great conversation here. So a little bit off topic because now it's not going to be about the analytic, right? And what's going on. I want to ask you a personal question and saying, if you look at yourself, right, of where you are right now, if you wanted to give yourself an advice like 10 years ago, what would that be?
0: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I've thought about it. um because I had the chance to do this once I left the industry and came back. So I've gotten a second chance seven years older than when I left the industry the first time. So I've actually lived a little bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the advice or what I did when I re-entered the industry three, three and a half years ago was to focus, not just focus on the, the near term results. Um, we've all got stuff, right? Whether it, and it depends on your business, but everybody's got to-do list checklists, yeah, you've got to run to the next report, run to the next re- design, and, and when I first started in the business, that was all I had focused on, and I never put much time or energy into building something, building a practice that was sustainable. Yeah, uh, sustainable from how you do it, but also how you go to work, your you know how it fits within your life. So, you know, being a little bit older, a little bit grayer, with the second chance. Um, mm-hmm i I've thought a lot about that, and I've tried to do it, so it's been working a lot closer with various industry associations with you know trying to forge different partnerships where it's not just purely transactional right It's not yeah. just a sale it's not just a relationship in the industry where you trade information it's it's partnering with organizations where Hopefully, you, you provide value to that organization, that group of people. Yeah. And then in turn, you know, the, naturally, you hope that your cadence fades on the way on, on the other side. And, and so I've really, really tried to focus on balancing kind of that near term, what you need to do to be successful in your job, along with kind of that long term of like what you want your role to be, what you want your position in the industry to be. Yeah. You know, how you're perceived. So that's been the big change, I think. And you know, if I would have told myself seven to ten years ago, you know, I would have just had focused more on that. Like the 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 near term tactical stuff will fall in place if you've got a decent strategy and roadmap behind it. But I was admittedly a little too young and foolish to realize that at the time.
1: <laughs> yeah but it is with this question right it's always easier to answer yeah. because you like it's reflection right when you're in it right if you now look yeah. 10 years ahead and you have to say what should i do now to change or what you know what what will be good for me um it's not as easy it's always yeah. better or easier to, to look back so i i really like it and and i also think it 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 like full circle as well of, of what we talked about in the beginning right it's about the listening as well. So here, right, you're building that partnership or relationship by listening and actually providing value. Um, yeah. So it's a two-way street on it. Absolutely. So great advice. Um, if any of the listener wants to, to reach out to you, how, how can they connect with you? Sure. The best is
0: uh, via email. It's Dennis, D-E-N-N-I-S at Edgewater, dot com. Would love to hear from anybody.
1: Awesome. And I'll make sure on the show notes and also on the episode page on mindinnovation.com, I'll make sure to to add that so the listener can easily actually reach out to you. So Dennis, awesome. thank you so much. This was this was great. I think, you know, looking in of, of what's going on in the industry. Um everybody wants to know, right? What should they do and how to forecast and what's going on. Uh, but it, it's so much better, you know, that you talk about it, learn about it, and actually I listened a lot today. So thank you so much.
0: No, thank you very much and and appreciate you having me on.
1: If you like Mind Innovation, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you get your podcast. You can follow Sana Vinding and Mind Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And make sure to check out mindinnovation.com. Stay curious and keep learning. See you next time.